All right, if you've got a Bible or a phone, uh, grab it and let's, um, let's read from the book of Esther. Let's continue our study of the book of Esther. We're found uh, this morning in uh, chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. We'll read to the end of the chapter through 23. So you follow in your copies as we read that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here we go. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, for the first seven centuries of the Christian church, not one commentary was ever written about the book of Esther. John Calvin never preached from the book of Esther, nor did he ever write a commentary on the book of Esther. Martin Luther was denounced the book along with 2 Maccabees, and he said this about them, and I quote, I am so great an enemy to 2 Maccabees and to Esther that I wish they had not come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. Anti-Semites, you know what an anti-Semite is, it's someone who despises Jews, anti-Semites have always hated this book, and Nazis forbade its reading. As a result, those who were prisoners in the death camps wrote the book down from memory and read it, of course in secret, on Jewish holidays, particularly Purim. There is not one verse, not one verse, from the book of Esther that has been recorded in the New Testament. Not one verse is ever taken by any spokesman in the New Testament and used and commented upon. Now, why is all this? Why, 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 how do you explain what I guess you could call opposition to this book of Esther? Well, gang, we, we've already mentioned a, a possible reason as to why. And that is that there is no reference, there is no mention at all about God in the entire book. In none of his names, he is never, never mentioned in the entirety of the book. And that can't be an oversight. It's deliberate. That the author is making a point. And the point is that the Jews are in great danger via Haman, the villain of the book, 
And in the midst of their danger, God seems to be absent. But is he? Well, if you've read the book, um, as I pled with you to do, if you've read the book, you know that, of course, he's not absent. But the author has a goal. And the goal is not to give you a nice little quaint story about Jewish history. The author's goal is helping us to define those times in our lives, in the reader's lives, where God seems to be remote, where God seems to be absent. That's, that's what's going on here, guys. Now, when you read this little 19 through 23, this little, part, this little episode in the part of the overall book, in chapter 2. What did you think? What came to mind? Did you think, well, now that I see what's happening, I know what's going on here. Most likely you didn't. Guys, these verses in 19 through 23 of chapter 2 is just one more in a string of coincidences that end up ultimately delivering the Jews. Let, 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 me, let me go over some of those, those um, coincidences. Um, first of all, the, um, the king gets drunk. Um, and in his inebriated state, he, uh, he makes a boast about the beauty of his queen. Now, who would have ever dreamed that God was at work in public drunkenness? And then, inexplicably and inexcusably, Vashti, the queen, refuses to allow herself to be some kind of sex object. Which was her job. That sets in motion... A, a string of events that, that takes on a life of itself, ending up with Esther being the queen. Another coincidence is that Esther is pretty. Very pretty. And uh, apparently she has some other attributes as, as well. And then as chapter 2 closes, we come to this little throwaway episode about Mordecai uncovering a plot to assassinate the king. He reports it, it's investigated, found out that it's true, and these two men are hung. And then, another in the string of coincidences, the king promptly forgets about it. Gang, think about that. If you've read the story... This entire book hinges on the king forgetting this little episode of chapter 2. And then later on, later on of course, chapter 6, one night, the king can't sleep. He gets up and he asks that the book of <coughs> memorable 
deeds be brought to him and read to him. But had he remembered it and rewarded it in chapter 2, the story never would have worked. The book is hinging on this little, tiny detail that the king forgot it. And then, before you know it, one thing leads to another. And the, um, the Jews are delivered. I want to tell you a story. Um, back girls. Uh, can, can you see that? Can you see that from the back, that bump right there below my knee? Can you see that? You know what that's called? That's called Osgood Slaughter. That happened to me when I was nine years old. Um, I was playing football in Gary Guy, a little uh, friend of mine in the neighborhood, Gary Guy's front yard. I was playing football with Gary Guy and some other boys. And I got tackled and I came down on the edge, the little um, corner of the the sidewalk that led to Gary's house. Split my knee open, had to go to the doctor, went to the doctor, he stitched it all up. And in conjunction with this knee event, this bump on my leg uh, appeared and it was analyzed as uh, uh, Osgood Slaughter. Very tender for a while. Uh, that's been gone for years, but uh, didn't really stop me from doing anything. But there I had it, Osgood Slaughter. Fast forward a little bit, I'm in college now, it's uh, 1966, the Vietnam War is raging, and and I make a decision as an 18-year-old punk that if I'm going to represent my country, if I'm going to go fight for my country, I'm going to do it as an officer. And uh, not only that am I going to be an officer, but I'm going to be an officer flying something that's bad, mean, and fast. So I enlist the United States Air Force. Um, I'm an ROTC cadet. Um, I pass all the little tests that's required, and sooner or later, I, be- I get my cadet wings, and the United States government begins to pay for me to uh, become a pilot. They, I get my pilot's license at taxpayer expense. I'm a pilot. I have a pilot's license. Uh, Susie and I marry, and we're going to be a military couple, and we're about to head off to uh, flight school in Selma, Alabama, uh, Craig Air Force Base that is now closed. But uh, that's where we were assigned. And before I could get there, I get a letter from Uncle Sam. And my dear uncle writes me and says, You are now out. You have been medically disqualified. You are now 4F. You know what 4F means? That means medically disqualified. You are out, big boy. And you know what they pointed to as the reason that um, I was medically disqualified? That. Um, Procter and Gamble hears about it, hires me, sends me to Fort Lauderdale. Susie and I are looking for a church. We find a church, we hear the gospel, and we both become Christians. Huh. Uh, two years later, we think that God's calling us into the ministry. So we quit our job, pack our little car, and head up to um, Jackson, Mississippi to go to school. And uh, I don't know, I guess it was the second year that I was there. Uh, An article appeared in the Commercial Appeal. That's the newspaper here in Memphis for you young folk who don't read it. 
but some of us old people, we still read the paper. But back then in 1972, let's say, 73, whatever, um, there's an article that appears in the Commercial Appeal. It's an article about a church here in Memphis. There's a church here in Memphis um, uh, that is a part of a denomination, and this church believes that its denomination has become very liberal. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the inspiration of the scripture, the virgin birth. And so this church wants to get out of this denomination. This denomination wants to sue this church for, for pulling out. And so this church, in light of 1 Corinthians 6, that says that Christians aren't supposed to take each other to court, um, uh, settles with this denomination outside of court for $250,000, writes them a check for $250,000, and then they are allowed to free without any further legal ramifications. That article appeared in the Commercial Appeal. My mother, who was still alive then, uh, read that article. It's living here. In, she was living here in Memphis. She read that article. She cuts it out of the Commercial Appeal, puts it in a letter, and sends it to me, snail mail, um, at, 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 at uh, RTS in Jackson, Mississippi. I read that article about this church, and I am, I am I'm impressed with what these, what these people have done. And so I sit down, and I write a note myself. I write a note to this pastor of this church up here in Memphis, and I say, I know this was hard, I know this has been a hard time for you all, but in line of 1 Corinthians 6, I think you're right. I think you have properly applied 1 Corinthians 6, and I know it doesn't seem fair that they're going to get $250,000, but I think you've done well, and I applaud you. That pastor that I wrote that little note to was so impressed with my note that he took my note and put it on the front page of their newsletter that is sent out to the congregation. He also then sat down, writes me a note um, in uh, Jackson and says, thanks for your note. Next time in you're in Memphis, please stop by. I'd like to meet you. Next time I'm in Memphis, I stop by and I meet him. We kind of hit it off almost immediately, and uh, he said, uh, let me ask you a question. Um, would you like to speak in our church uh, on this, win- in our Wednesday night program? And I said, I very much would like that. We, uh, through those things, became friends. Of course, his name is Jimmy Latimer. I graduate from seminary. I head to Ocala, Florida. Uh, I'm there 10 years. I mean, time has passed, and things are getting kind of sticky, and Jimmy calls me and says, hey, why don't you come to Memphis and work for me? I come to Memphis. He gives me a job. Uh, two years into that job, he says, when you get ready, we're going to go start a church. We'd like for you to start a church. Four years after that, we started a church. This one. All because my mother read an article that she thought was impressive So she clipped it out, sent it to me, and then I wrote a note. And then he wrote a note. What if my mother had never read that article? What if the commercial appeal had never included it? What if my mother, having read the the, the article... Never had sent it to me. What if, what if having read it, I had never responded to it? And having responded to it, what if the pastor had never responded to me? Or what if 
This had never happened. At age nine. Guys, here's my point. All of you, all of you, every last one of you, have a story like that. Spend part of your afternoon just thinking. A phone call. A, an email. A, I dropped by Kroger and ran into that, that television show. Oh, there he is. There he is. There he is. There's who? God. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, I dare say that there is somebody, maybe one, two, one that are in this room this morning. Because, I mean, you didn't plan to come to church over here, I mean, no. but, but, but because of some kind of coincidence, here you are. Guys, do you see it? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> this story about the book in the book of Esther. It's, it's really not about how one group wins over another group through an extraordinary chain of events. That's not the message of the book, folks. The story it, 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 woven into the warp and the woof of this of this text. The story is about an unseen God. It's about the unmentioned. God. It's about how that God is alive in every detail of your life. Though you don't see Him. This story is about the God who David, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, He knows when I stand up he knows when I sit down. He is intimately acquainted with all my ways. This book is about God the governor. It's about the God who is behind all of those coincidences. It's about the God who hasn't deserted you even though it might feel like He has. It's a story about the God who hasn't deserted you although you may have deserted Him while you seek all of those beauty treatments that the world has to offer. 
so that you can spend one night in the arms of a pagan world who wants to devour you, use you, and throw you away. This is a story about the God. who governs your life even though you don't even believe in Him. This book is about the God who found a way to save somebody as wicked as I am. And He did it through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I think some of you have have given up on this God because the world tells you, I I don't see Him. I mean, (laughs) I've never heard Him. And the book of Esther shouts at you. And says, there he is. He's in the letter. There he is. He's in the details. He's in the minutiae. All of them. Every last one of them in your life. And my friend, you may think this is utter foolishness. But one day, in a coincidence, you're going to see Him. And then you're going to, you're going to be slain by the thought how did I ever miss him how could I not have seen him in all those coincidences guys when when you and I think of redemptive history we normally think of those great miracles, those great events where, the, where the, the presence of God is on display in spades. Things like um, the parting of the Red Sea or Sodom and Gomorrah or, or, or even the resurrection. When, when God works in extraordinary ways like that, we know that He's in that. We know He's there in those. But when He works in the ordinary, We're tempted to conclude that he's not there. But don't you understand that these mighty acts of God are linked together through long years of human history by a chain of of the seemingly insignificant ordinary events. You know, guys, we are right now living in one of those long stretches of history 
between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. And, and, and like Xerxes, we've got people alive and well today like, like kings and presidents who are making decisions from purely political and domestic motives. We've got people like Vashti who are making decisions unwittingly that have far-reaching consequences, far beyond what they could have ever dreamed. And yet, through those decisions, through those events, made by people who have not one smidgen of interest in God and His, and His church, through them, God is moving all of history forward to accomplish all that must happen before the return of His Son, who is the real King. Gang, just because He is silent, it does not mean He is absent. His silence is not His absence. And it is that same God who welcomes all sinners who come to Christ. You know, whereas you may look out over human history and you, and you conclude it's just raw fatalism. Que sera, sera. This book teaches us something different. It teaches us that behind the unfolding of human events... That in the succession of moments, there is a personal God with a good intent. And He is steering and governing the history of man as it moves towards the cataclysmic event of the return of His Son. Let me make one application and then I'll quit. Just because this was what I've said, I think, influences this application, I hope. When I, when I first became a Christian, uh, Susie and I were living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and we were completely cut off from family and friends. And, you know, to make a long-distance phone call was a big deal back then. But um, uh, we developed this whole new set of friends, and most of us were, were new Christians. And we would get together. I was in a, a group of men that prayed on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings, and um, whenever we were with our Christian, our new Christian friends, one of the subjects that invariably came up is the will of God. We were always talking about how to find the will of God, what we, what it would look like, um, you know, what happens if we missed it and all those things. Um, and, and of course, if you're a young Christian and you're serious about following Jesus Christ, God's will is certainly something that's important to you. But, um, but as a young and, and, and uninformed Christian, I had this flawed understanding of how to know God's will for my life. I, I, I kept looking for something that would be dramatic, something that had a shebang to it, something, um, some kind of sign that would, that would clearly tell me what God wanted me to do and where He wanted me to do it. I was convinced, although I was wrong, I was convinced that some kind of angelic being was going to show up and just to test my commitment to Jesus Christ, He was going to ask of me that I go someplace that I didn't want to go and do something I didn't want to do. 
What I fail to realize is that God's will for me was being revealed day by day in the unfolding of ordinary moments, ordinary events. You know, guys, the true test, I guess, of of Christian living is not trying to search out God's will for you down the road. The true test is, will I obey Him in the present? Will I obey Him in the place in which I find myself doing the thing that He has assigned me? You know, as I tried to search out God's will and, and change my life accordingly, God was leading me. Silently, imperceptibly, and yet inexorably. To decision after decision and situation after situation. One thing led to another in an unbreakable chain. You know, somebody has said life is what happens while you're making other plans. Well, I never did get that angelic visitation. And yet God has undeniably worked in the ordinary moments of my life. From the point that I became from the point that I split my knee open when I was nine to the day that I stand before you as a pastor of a church in Germantown. And you know what? He's doing the same thing in your life. Though you may not see it. That's the message of that book. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in all those what ifs, what if, what if I hadn't a split my knee? What I mean, would I have flown and gone to Vietnam and been shot down? Or what if my mother? My mother hadn't sent the article. Would I still be selling Tide? What if? What if? What if? Ladies and gentlemen, God is in those. He's in them. And what would make this journey a whole lot easier for all of us? is that we would choose by His grace to obey Him now. Not that the obedience earns us anything, but because we've come to believe that even though this God may be silent, this God is not absent. And this God is good.
greatest display of his goodness was in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way you come to know this God is through Christ. Do you know him? Our Father, um, thank you that you have included a book in the book that reminds us that nothing is going on without your sovereign decree or permission. That uh, you are the God of coincidences. That you are the God who hasn't deserted us, even though that we may have chosen to desert you. You are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom forgiveness of sin is found. So, Father, would you remind us of all that? Would you allow us to leave here today with the great puzzlement, the great wondering of how you could have ever pulled off our lives from Osgood's slaughter to a letter in the mail you've done that in all of our lives Father and we love you we're sorry we love you so little but would you grant us grace to love you more. We ask all this, of course, in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. And Father, if you have, if you have led people here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, would you bring them to the place where they see their greatest need is for a Savior? Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.